Harper Academic Calling, Stephen Half. Still Waters in a Storm is an after-school program held in Bushwick, Brooklyn. It is a place for kids to practice reading and writing in English, Spanish, and Latin. For the students, many living in constant fear of deportation, Still Waters is a refuge. For Stephen Half, a former public school teacher, it is the sanctuary he built following a breakdown caused by bipolar depression. At Stillwaters, everyone agreed there would only be one rule. Everyone listens to everyone. And this has unlocked spectacular potential. Since 2016, the students have been collectively translating Don Quixote into English, taking the Spanish tale, a story about a dreamer who never gives up, and adapting it into a bilingual musical. As the kids perform their work across New York City, they learn that they belong in this country, their voices amplifying to deliver a message of diversity, love, hope, and resilience, which is essential to us all. Stephen and the Stillwaters kids came to our office before publication to perform a section of their musical adaptation, and what I tell Stephen in the beginning of our conversation, that it remains one of my best days in the office, is quite true. I don't think I will forget the day I was introduced to them, their project, and what is now our book, Kid Quixotes. I spoke with Stephen over Zoom, so this episode will also mark the debut of my cat Matilda in the background on a few occasions for those of you who are very careful listeners. We talked about Kid Quixotes, the pedagogy behind Still Waters, and how such a project transforms young students from passive to active readers and engaged critical thinkers. Kid Quixotes is available now in hardcover from Harper One. So today, via Zoom, which we are the only ones who can see each other, but that's fine. Today, via Zoom, we have Stephen Hath, who is the author of Kid Quixotes. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So I absolutely love this book, and I have to tell you and tell our listeners that when you and the group of your students who came to our office to do a mini presentation for us, a mini performance of Kid Quixotes, that has been by and far and away one of my favorite days at work. It was so wonderful <laughs> um, to see them. So I'm really, I'm really, really thrilled to talk with you about this book and to, to help our teachers learn a bit more about the project that you all are doing. Well, wonderful. Me too. So to get us started, and just to kind of get our listeners started with what your book is about, so my first question is, you run a program called Still Waters in a Storm, which I hope you'll tell us a little bit about, and it basically operates on a one-room schoolhouse type model, where your students who are between the ages of 5 and 17 are all grouped together rather than sort of being separated out into, into age categories. Why did you build your in- learning environment in that particular way? Well, uh, the human brain hasn't changed since the Stone Age, really. We evolved to live in a tribe, an extended family or maybe a village, where everyone is looking out for everyone. And the raising of children was everyone's job, from teenagers to young adults to the elders. Um, And in our classroom, the little kids feel safe in a group like that. They feel well taken care of. And the little ones naturally bring out the best in everyone else. Everyone feels like life is unfolding in the right way, Mm -hmm. the way that we're wired to live. And this sense of well-being takes care of the behavior problems that occur in school classrooms, uh, where, as you mentioned, kids are segregated by age. Uh, 
Um, in those classrooms, as I know from years of experience in the public school system, uh, the students can't benefit from this same range of cross-generational perspectives. And they struggle to understand how their school experience is relevant to their lives when they're caught in this sort of loop of abstraction, you know, performing academic tasks whose only value seems to be the grade that the teacher applies when you complete the work mm -hmm. or, or the punishments for not completing the work. Um, and nobody benefits at all from their effort on these assignments. There's no, nobody else benefits. Um, so it's easy for them to lose interest. You know, they start to feel, well, what is the point of all this? All I do is I do what the teacher says. I give it to the teacher. The teacher gives a grade and that's it. What is the meaning of all of this? So that, so they lose interest. And, uh, but, and not only that kids need attention. You know, not just the little ones, the teenagers need attention too. Yeah, sure. Um, they need to feel beloved. And teachers are meant to act in loco parentis, you know, in place of the parents. Um, but when you have 25 or 30 children all needing attention from a single adult at the front of the room, uh, which is an impossible job for that adult, um, they begin to act out and they compete with each other. And schools actually encourage competition. They reward students with high grades on the honor roll and in their mission statements, even at Bushwick High School where I, where I taught all those years, the mission statement even touted the virtue of what they said as being prepared to compete in the global economy. That was the phrase, upon graduation, of mm -hmm. course. So their, their present lives in school and at home and in the neighborhood are almost completely devalued. They're, they're told that the reward for all of this will be down the road, and it's something vague about having a better job and competing. But then, you know, precious little attention is paid to their needs in the moment. So right now they need attention. Right now they need to feel like their work matters to someone, really matters. Um, and they're not getting that. And in my experience, competition doesn't produce a, a depth of thought. It doesn't produce compassion, certainly. And, and bo both of those things, you know, uh, thinking and uh, compassion rely on patience. And, and on understanding instead of pressure. Um, so when we feel safe, we can really learn. And that's, that's the reason why I wanted to recreate this sort of Stone Age tribal model. And, and it's remarkable. I mean, when you see the difference between a classroom I used to teach in the school system and this one, this one is completely civilized. You know, uh, so uh, I hope that answers the question. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the, the big projects that you all are working on is you are translating and adapting um, Cervantes's Don Quixote with your students. So why choose Don Quixote? What is it about that book 
that is a great fit for these students and the experiences that they've had? First of all, I chose to uh, I chose to have us work on a translation project because it provides common ground between me and my student. The kids are bilingual. They speak Spanish at home. They speak English in school. And I've noticed with their friends, they very rarely speak Spanish with their friends, even though they all know Spanish. And I came into the project knowing only a little bit of Spanish. So translating the book together allows everyone to be an expert in some way. So it's not a matter of, you know, I have all the knowledge and they are empty vessels, you know? Yeah. That I pour the knowledge into the empty vessel. It's not that way. Everyone is an expert in some way. And everyone has a set of experiences and thoughts and questions that are valuable. So, you know, when we work like this, translating the book together, we can learn from each other and everyone can make a meaningful contribution to the collective effort. And that includes even kids who can't read. Like my daughter, when she was five years old, she joined this group. And there have been others too. There's a, there's a little five-year-old younger sister of one of the longtime group members, and she, she joined recently, and a six-year-old little sister joined. Even though they can't read, they can participate in the process of translation because they can hear what other people are reading and they can hear other people's ideas and then they can think of alternative mm -hmm. um, translation choices. So, you know, so for translating one word from uh, Spanish into English, we can have uh, a debate that the little ones can participate in. I, I also, I chose Don Quixote specifically, this one, to translate because it's everything that life is you know it's funny and tragic it's smart and silly and it's beautiful and disgusting one of the favorite scenes of the kids is when when uh, quixote and sancho drink what they think is a magic potion and they end up vomiting all over each other so uh, i know that wasn't in the part of the show that that we presented at harper collins but it actually became a scene in the play where Everybody's in a hospital emergency room, and Quixote has this so-called magic potion, and then everybody's at the end of the song that they sing, everybody vomits. So the kids just love it. And, you know, so with kids, the most important attribute of a, a book or a project is that it be funny um, because they, you know, they love to laugh. And it doesn't matter what you're dealing with. It could be the most tragic thing, the saddest thing. They will give it their respect that they're not going to trivialize suffering or pain, but they will, before too long, find something to laugh about, and they'll come out of whatever the, the darkness is. I mean, we talk about serious things, very serious things. In this play, we talked about, we even talked about suicide. We talked about abuse, uh, slavery, really dark things, and, uh, and somehow they managed to translate that adapt that into a play that is funny without disrespecting uh the, the the experiences of people who are suffering so it's a kind of genius that they have that they're able to do that so uh they love that it's funny and they're always laughing 
about uh, Quixote and Sancho. There's a, you know the, all the slapstick humor in the book and the arguments that they have, the hilarious arguments that the friends have. So the kids love that. And But kids also like to play pretend. <laughs> and Don Quixote is a story basically of two friends who are playing pretend. You know, I've seen in the classroom, one of the favorite games when the kids are on break, one of their favorite games is to set up their own little school in the back of the room. And they have someone who pretends to be the teacher and the others are students. And some of the students are, are good kids and some are bad. And, you know, so I see them uh, acting out, playing pretend. And that's really what the, what the, the novel is uh, also. And the, the book, the novel is a, a road trip. So Quixote and Sancho just hit the road and they have adventures along the way. And the families I work with have all traveled far and at great risk and sacrifice uh, to come to this country. They never give up. Um, and that's just like the heroes in the book who persist uh, no matter how awful things get and how brutalized they are along the road, they keep going. And you know, one example from our, uh, our class is that, um, from the book, is that the mother of Sarah, Sarah's the little girl mm -hmm. who plays Kid Quixote. Her mother uh, tells a story in the book about her seven attempts to cross the border from Mexico into the United States. And this just harrowing um, uh, details of what she went through and how she never gave up, no matter how awful and terrifying it was mm -hmm. and how impossible it seemed. She kept going. And then she ends up telling, this is in the book too, she ends up telling that story to Sarah. So the first time we hear the story, it's as a fable in which uh, Sarah's mother rides across the desert on the back of a tiger. So her mother takes this tale, this true life horror story, and turns it into a fable so that her little girl can admire that her mother is a true hero um, in this mythic way that still allows her to sleep at night. So, um, and then, you know, when we adapt the musical, uh, the, I mean, the, the novel as a musical play, it then becomes a vessel for stories like that, for the family stories. We use the structure of the book and then we introduce new non-fiction content from their real lives. And another example is in the Marcella scene when a young shepherdess uh, refutes the accusations of, of men who blame her for their friend's suicide. You know, she rejected this man and killed himself. And so they say it's all her fault. So she refutes all of that. Well, instead of her speech, which is magnificent, in our show, we have one of our teenage girls, she's called Alex in the book, and she sings her own original song about being, uh, the song's called Ruler of Myself. So she, she sings about, I am in charge of my own life. I get to decide who I am and who I love. And that turns into an anthem for self-sovereignty of every kind. Um, so, and that was inspired uh, by Don Quixote. And then well, one more thought, 
that kids are resilient too. They might fall down, you know, as Quixote and Sancho often do. They spend a lot of time on the ground, the heroes, you know, lying on their backs, beaten up, bruised. But like the heroes, the, the kids always get back up again. They get knocked down in various ways and they get back up again every single day. And that, that lifts up my heart as well in the audience. When the kids first saw the book, I bought them each a copy of the book in Spanish mm-hmm. and also of Edith Grossman's uh, English translation. And I gave, on the first day of class, I gave each kid one copy. I said, these books now belong to you. And their first reaction was, this book is too big. <laughs> it's like <laughs> they had never seen a book that big ever, even bigger than the Bible in, in church. So um, they were in awe of the size of it. And they were saying, we're going to read this. And so, you know, translating and adapting the book on top of that seems impossible to them at first. But when they succeed, then they're learning that they can do the so-called impossible. Yeah. You know, which yeah. I think gives them some courage. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's really, it's really remarkable to hear their stories and to hear how, how so much of their personal narrative they're willing to adapt into, into your translation. Yeah. And it's, it seems like from a reader and a, and a viewer's point of view, it seems just a continual act of, of bravery for them to do that kind of hard work. That was something that I found really admirable. I'd like to talk a little bit about the pedagogical model that you use of reciprocal listening, where everyone listens to everyone. One of the things that I like about that model is it gives a lot of power to individuals to their voice. And at the same time, it also has an equalizing effect because because the rule is that everyone has to listen to everyone else because you can learn from everyone in the room. Everyone has value in what they say. What are some of the ways in which reciprocal listening has helped your students as listeners and as speakers? And how has it particularly helped them in translating Quixote? Well, um, this idea about uh, mutual listening originated, I think, in my mind from two main sources. One was that I was raised in in Canada, in essentially a socialist country, where um, individual ambition uh, had to be balanced with the idea that we need to take care of everyone, that everyone needs to be included and everybody needs to have enough. So there was that idea. And then when I uh, broke down uh, multiple times with bipolar depression, um, I learned in therapy over the years of hard work of telling my story and revising my story until it was accurate, until my own narrative gave me a chance to carry on with my life, a a good life. Um, I learned that having someone listen to you is very powerful that that can change your life always for the better uh, as a result of our mutual listening you know as it applies to reading mm-hmm. um, 
the kids, well, first uh, discussion, just so when they're having a conversation, the kids have learned how to build on each other's ideas. And it's just so exciting to me when, when this happens, you know, they get excited when someone says something they agree with or they disagree with. And then they jump in, like when they say, they raise their hand and then they say, I want to add to what Alex just said, you know? That's every and teacher's they, dream. Like that's every teacher's dream yeah, to have students do yeah. it. Yeah. And, and they, these are like seven, six and seven year olds saying things like that. Yep. Along with, we have all the ages, all the way up to 17. We've got nine, 10, 12, 13 year olds. And they're all doing this. They're all saying, I want to add to what he said. I want to say something. I want to disagree with you. So listening to each other in the classroom also means, I think, naturally responding to each other, right? It's not just a passive receiving of something. It's a way of engaging with that, what that person is saying and thinking. And then when they all respond to each other, they create a kind of collective intelligence, you know? It's mm-hmm. like there's a giant brain at work. And, um, and that intelligence constructs work that matters to everyone. So that's how you get from one story by one author to a story that belongs to a group of people. And, then, and the kids love that bond. They love that they made this together. And when they perform the show that they've made together, the love is on display. And that's an element that years ago, I was at a pedagogical conference when I was teaching at the high school. And I gave a presentation about love in the classroom. And some of the teachers scoffed at it. They were like, you know, we've got serious things to to take care of. This isn't easy. Why are you talking about love? And then a couple of them were really excited about that because they were saying, yeah, you know, you're right. That's what's missing. But that's a word. Love is a word that like embarrasses people sometimes. (laughs) Um, But then once you say it, then your job as a teacher is to figure out what it means. You know, what does it look like in action? What does it sound like? So when the kids are performing, I think this might've happened when you saw the show. When the kids are performing this show that they've made, um, if a kid forgets a line, all she has to do is say, help, and someone else will give her the line. Mm -hmm. And then they keep going. And I talked with them about this in rehearsal, saying, you know, if that happens, just say help, get the line, say the line, and keep going. Don't act embarrassed. Don't say, oops. (laughs) Don't, Don't, you know, lose your composure. So that's what, how they do it. It's all about removing the pressure in a way. Yeah, and, sh- and shame, too. Yeah. Yeah. School uses shame a lot. Audiences have told me that they love witnessing the dynamic of kids helping each other during a performance. Mm-hmm. And, and that is based on trust. And the trust is earned over time. And over time, it's not instantaneous by patient, careful listening. You do that for long enough and kids then recognize that they are in a safe situation and they're, they're free to speak. Um, and they have told me, the kids have told me, a number of them have told me that at school, in their day schools, um, everything they say is either right or wrong. And so that breeds a fear of making mistakes. Mm-hmm. But, but in our class, 
even when we're translating from Spanish into English and adapting the novel as musical theater, there's no such thing as a mistake. Mm -hmm. There's only what you say and what I hear, or what I say and what you hear, and then what we make together from our conversation. So they're, they're, it's completely irrelevant, the idea of mistakes. They just don't exist. And we can depart from the literal meaning of something, the exactitude of translation, um, in favor of a choice that is inspired by the original, but, but this choice belongs to the group. And it's sort of like, say the word is perro in Spanish. So you could translate that as dog. Mm -hmm. Uh, but if you want to give it a slightly different color, you might translate it as a hound. Or if you were going back to Shakespeare's time, you'd call it a cur. Mm -hmm. So it depends what you're doing in the situation, in the context. And it also depends on who you are and what sounds good to you. Mm -hmm. You know, What sounds like poetry? What matches the personality of the character as you play that character? So this idea of no mistakes, you know, there, there's another example from my little girl, Zadie. When she was first learning to talk, she just turned seven years old this week. And earlier on in this project, when she was like two-ish, um, and she would visit, she would just say whatever she had to say. And she'd get very frustrated if you don't understand her. Mm -hmm. But then she would keep going, keep repeating it, keep trying other ways of explaining it until you would understand. So, you know, that became kind of a rallying cry for our Quixote group, where the kids would say, be brave like a baby. Because, <laughs> you know, that's how you learn. You try, you try again with people around you who support you. And, and I've seen, to, you know, to come back to the one of your basic questions here, I've seen children's confidence grow. It's, it's visible. You can see it in how they arrange their bodies. Mm -hmm. You can hear it in the way they talk. You can see it in the expression on their face, you know, mm -hmm. as, as they're listening to someone and their eyes get wider. And, you know, you can just see this uh, confidence that's based on this trust they have in each other. And, and it can grow. Sometimes you can see progress in, in a week, mm -hmm. and sometimes it takes years. And they begin by saying nothing. They don't want to talk. And, and they're never pressured to speak if they're not ready. But when they are ready, even if it takes a couple of years, like some people are just chronically inward, right? I mean, yeah. they're introverts, but, yep. and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. So they can be who they are, and when they're ready, we're ready to listen. And in that way, they've made the choice about when it's their time. Mm -hmm. I think that's really important, too, because if you coerce them, it can really backfire on you and on them. They can just start to feel like this is a place that is traumatizing them. And then we celebrate them for being brave when they do speak up. Um, and so, you know, Sarah, who I mentioned before, mm -hmm. who's the, who plays Kid Quixote, she's been playing that role since she was seven years old, and she's... 11 now and she's still an introvert she's still a very private person and we're not trying to remake anyone you know and introverts can be very thoughtful people mm -hmm. patient people and have many virtues and powers but now the difference is she has learned how to navigate in public 
So she's still who she is. She's still private. But now she has a delight in performing. Yeah. So she has both now. Yeah, that's great. And then uh, you mentioned also this, um, uh, the sort of egalitarian Mm -hmm. aspect of this, the political side. I mentioned Socialist Canada, but this um, process of reciprocal listening it sets up this model for cooperation in any setting. You know, you could bring it into uh, school, of course, uh, business, government, even personal relationships. You know, if you start in that, I, with that idea that you're going to listen to each other first, that that's how you're going to begin, uh, it can, it's transformative. And that's a model that I hope the kids will carry with them all their lives because every, if you do that everywhere you go you're you're building a more just society and something that you mentioned in that answer was how your students deal with serious etymological issues how one of the things that really struck me both in the performance um, that i saw and in reading the book is how there is a constant discussion, which seems to make sense given that you are doing the job of translation, but over what words mean. And it's hard to get people to think that words are constantly evolving things like that's you know the answer going back to your earlier point about you know being giving a right or a wrong answer you know um, there is sort of this misapprehension that words mean one thing because you can go to a dictionary and look them up and that is true in some sense but words are I like to think of words as living things words have changed over time and to see such young students struggle with sometimes argue over what particular words mean in context versus what they mean when you look them up into a dictionary and which word should you use? To me, that was that was very inspiring and and refreshing, quite frankly, to to see students who are so young deal with things that you know scholars de- some scholars dedicate their lives to their academic and professional lives to. So, how do you think this project influences, given given the struggles and work that they do, difficult work that they do with? the work of translation and, and um, creating meaning, making meaning, changing meaning, how do you think that work influences how these kids read and approach texts and the act of reading? And how do you think translation and transformation projects could help more students and, quite frankly, their teachers learn? Well, about reading... I think the work that we do, the process that we use in this uh, translation and adaptation, it allows kids to have their own experience of what a book means. Mm -hmm. Spoke about making meaning. They can decide what it means to them, rather than imagining that there's some kind of official approved meaning out there, external to themselves. So as readers, Now, after doing this process, they know that they're actually, when they're reading, they're making creative choices. Mm -hmm. They're interpreting the words, they're relating them to their own lives and to their own imaginations. And they also learn that it's okay and even beautiful to disagree respectfully with other people's interpretations. So they learn that meaning is constructive. 
and that and this uh, group process, the multiplicity of voices, you know, that are questioning each other, wondering, asserting, guessing, celebrating, you know, these voices become part of their individual internal experience of reading. Mm-hmm. So uh, reading as making something. Yeah. Now that they've had, they've negotiated with all these different types of voices, those voices become their own in their, in their own mind as they're reading. Um, and, and reading can be such a mystery until you do it, until you learn it. And kids don't re- necessarily know what's going on in your brain when you're reading. So, you know, modeling that in a group setting tells them, oh, when I read, I'm having this conversation inside me. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering about things. I'm guessing what's coming next. I'm um, celebrating when something touches me or, uh, you know, I'm laughing when something's funny. Um it's uh, I recognize something from this in my own life, whatever that all those voices are now their voices in their mind. And and so they really reading belongs to each one of them. Mm-hmm. Right. It's not the school doesn't decide what the meaning is. The teacher certainly doesn't decide that they decide that each one of them. And um, and then about translation. Um, the word translate comes from the Latin for carrying across. Mm-hmm. So you take what is said in one language and you carry it across to another language. And, and as you do this, you're carrying thoughts across from the author to yourself. And that crossing adds another layer of creative thought, you know, a layer of interpretation and creativity and another carrying across because you're having to move these thoughts into a new place and uh and use new words to describe them um so and when you practice this in a group the conversations are a kind of translation Mm -hmm. as one person's thoughts you know they put it into words and it travels and meets up with another person's thoughts and meets up with another person and another person. It keeps going across the space between us and our neighbors. So there's always that, you know, even when you're sitting next to each other at the table, there's a space between you. And when you speak your thoughts, you know, you are translating whatever's in there, uh, images, feelings, and sending it to another person who then takes it and interprets it again. So the goal of all of this, translation, discussion, reading, all of it is about uh, understanding. So that's understanding yourself. And it's so sad because in school, in the high school, I was told that kids were not allowed to write about their own lives, not allowed to write about what mattered to them, their experiences, their feelings, not allowed. In fact, if they do that on the state exam, the regents exam, they would get uh, lose points for writing about themselves. It's not allowed. So, but what is more important than figuring out who you are and also figuring out how to love other people and, and be loved by other people? You know, if we're supposed to be the teacher, the, the parents, in, in essence, uh, that's what parents do, right? They provide love and they uh and they teach love 
So this idea that it's all about understanding ourselves, understanding other people, understanding our surroundings, not just physical surroundings, but historical surroundings. If you're always seeking to understand, that is a humble state of being. And I think that in humility, we can find peace. You know, uh, it's a release from always trying to make other people do or say what you want them to, you know, which is a, a trap that teachers fall into, you know, because their priority so much of the time is control um, in the classroom, you know, because the numbers are just impossible. When I broke down, I needed to build a place where I could teach that was safe for me as well as the kids. And so when I find, when I remind myself that the goal is to understand, you know, that gives me the humility that actually brings me peace. That humility transforms teaching into genuine service Mm -hmm. and and learning then becomes a way of life if your attitude is i just want to learn right not i want to dominate not i want to profit not i want to cross the line first but i would like to learn i want to understand then you know that that is humility and that is service And maybe that answers the next question that I'm going to ask you. And if so, that's okay. But how has Still Waters and the Quixote Project help you as a teacher and a person? Well, uh, Still Waters has helped me to be patient. I think that's the, the most important word. And that word comes from the Latin, uh, Latin verb. And one of the senses of that verb is allowing. Mm-hmm. So, if you know, oftentimes we think of patience as waiting until we get what we want. So, for example, my daughters here—they're uh, obsessed with certain video games, and uh, they're told that they're not allowed to play them until four o'clock in the afternoon. That before that, they have to do other things. They do their reading, their writing, their artwork, or whatever it is something interesting, something wholesome, and then four o'clock, they can play their games. So, you know, if they're told to be patient, that's what that means to them. It's like, well, do something else, and then eventually you'll get to do what you want to do. And that's kind of what the school system tells kids. Like, okay, you're bored right now. You're suffering right now. You can't stand being in school, but who cares about your life right now in the future you're going to get a better job. You know, you'll be able to compete in the global marketplace. So I think the opposite. So that patience is not a kind of pressure of like restraining yourself attention until you get what you want, but it's making room for what is, what is right now, make room for that. And over the years, I've released more and more of my classroom authority to the group. You know, uh, my authority in the public school system was mostly derived from institutional power. So the the school system as a part of our government is a massive institution. And so anything I did in the classroom, no matter how enlightened I tried to be, was representing and enforcing the values of that massive system. So as 
after I, while I was there, but then especially after I left the system, I kept releasing authority. Not, not like being reckless and saying, oh, do whatever you want, you know. Yeah. But, um, but in the school system, control was a high priority because there were so many students and, and comparatively very few adults in the building. And uh, so they were afraid, quite honestly. They were afraid of what would happen if all these disgruntled kids decided to act out in a big way. I mean, there were fights all the time. There were fights in classrooms, in the hallways, in the cafeteria, uh, all the time. Yeah. So much violence. But, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I think that's because the kids didn't get enough loving attention. So in school. So control was this uh, priority and classes really turned into battles between me and the kids. And, and some of those battles, I regret to say, ended when I had to call uh, security officers to take the kids out of the room. I, I wish I had known better how to handle it back then. And I was also always afraid that if there was something I didn't know, you know if I failed, I failed to know more than the kids know at any moment, then I would lose control. Yeah. And I think a lot of teachers feel that pressure. It's like, that's why they have to construct the lesson where they know and the kids don't know. Yeah. So that that's the relationship. So that struggle for control, it just wastes a lot of life and a lot of promise. So then as, as we talked about at the beginning of our conversation, when I put all the ages together in the Stone Age tribe, uh, my job became not to control them, but to listen to them and to use whatever natural authority I do have, you know, which could come from knowledge, of course, but it could also come from kindness, you know, establishing a pattern of kindness. So they say, oh, we'll listen to this person because he's kind to us or the trust established between me and their parents. So they know, and their parents will always ask me, so how did they behave today? And so, you know, that involvement of the adults, that caring involvement, um, you know, is, is crucial because then this battle doesn't have to happen. I used whatever my authority was, whatever remained of my authority in the classroom to make sure, I saw my job as making sure that every person listens to every person, everyone listens to everyone, always. And I thought, well, that's basically my whole job. Just make sure that everyone has an equal chance and uh, is treated with the greatest care and respect. And I don't need to be the only source of attention that each kid needs. You know, they can provide that for each other. A mm-hmm. 17-year-old can comfort a six-year-old yeah. beautifully, often better than I can. You know, and the kids really do naturally want to care for each other. So I don't need to be the only source of attention. And in fact, I'm happiest when I'm not speaking. I mean, I love to talk about all of these ideas that we have today, you know, because I care a lot about education now and in the future. And, And I believe in what we're doing. But in the classroom, you'd see that I don't really talk very much. Mm-hmm. And, and that makes me happy. I'd have to say about me personally, that the patience that I've learned in my teaching practice 
has made me a more patient parent at mm-hmm. home. And I see my job in general as removing pressure and replacing it with respect for the for the child and for me. And uh, and patience in recovery from mental illness is really, really important. Because yeah. now I can study myself gently, you know, instead of these harsh self-condemnation that I had years ago. Yeah. So now I can look at myself and be gentle and, and say, okay, I'm going to make room for who I am. Yeah, that's great. That's great. So just one more question for you. Sure. And mm-hmm. it's a question that we ask all of the guests on our podcasts. And you can sort of, you can create meaning from the question however you would like. So it fits in with, fits in with what, what you already know how to do very well. But who was your favorite teacher? Wow. Uh, my favorite teacher. Yeah. I've been lucky to have a lot of mentors, a lot of people who taught me well and, and imparted great wisdom that uh, has sustained me. You know, I, I would have to say it's probably my youngest daughter. Um, because, I mean, there are so many people, there's so many people I could count who have illuminated my work but living with her and caring about her has taught me what love is you know and I mean I had an idea I had very loving parents who raised me and I had a lot of kind and encouraging teachers along the way and good friends I've been really lucky that way but this love is it's a responsibility for someone else's it's so tricky to talk about because it's so big Mm -hmm. i mean she's so little but but the love is so big that um every day i have to reflect and practice raising her or more accurately allowing her to rise up on her own yeah and just be there next to her hearing her stories and not correcting her just listening to her ideas and trying to answer her questions so now whereas before I was a teacher now my life is is as a student yeah and I think that you know student is another Latin word that means devoted so, you know, I think it's in devotion that we learn, whether it's in devotion to playing a musical instrument, devotion to learning another language, for some people, devotion to their religion. Mm-hmm. Um, in devotion to my child, I am a student. And, and the word student has now been, in my life, has been redeemed. Um, it used to mean that I was... I was a kind of a subject of the teachers. And now it means that I'm participating in, in a lifelong love. That's really wonderful. <laughs> that is. That's really, really wonderful. So thank you, oh, for, thank you for sharing for that. And thank you for being a guest on our podcast. Oh, it's been so wonderful welcome. talking with you. This was a great pleasure. And I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing it. And I, I want to say, if any whoever's listening to this, you know, of course, I encourage you to read the book, but I also encourage you to get in touch with me. 
on the on the website you can go to uh, stillwatersinastorm.org and and there you'll find my contact information and i would love to speak with teachers anyone who's interested in education uh, that's why i wrote the book because i wanted these ideas to travel and i want to hear from people i want to i want to have conversations so please do reach out to me um I'd, I'd love to hear from you. Excellent. And we hope they do too.